We got columns on the walls and lights and banners and old-time music. Isn't that a sight? I told you wasn't nothing going to change. How many of y'all brought your King James Bible with you tonight? Will you hold that up? Yes, sir. Hadn't changed, have we? No, sir. Well, let's open our Bibles tonight to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3 in the New Testament, page number uh, 1,314. If you'll just join me there, I want to read a verse in a moment and uh, uh, say some things about this verse, and then we're going to jump right back into our uh, Bible study tonight. 1 Peter chapter 3, 1,314 in the Old Schofield Bible. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you for coming and loving your church, loving the Lord, and I appreciate you being here, and I hope the Lord will just help us tonight. All right, 1 Peter chapter 3, pray for the service this Sunday. I'm preaching about Calvary right now, and, and boy, I was just working on that today. Boy, my heart got blessed, and I don't know what's going to happen Sunday. It'll probably be cold and indifferent again by Sunday, but I tell you what, it sure blessed my heart today, just, just walking around Calvary. And uh, so uh, I hope you'll be here Sunday morning and then pray for the services. Let's ask the Lord to give us a good day Sunday. 1 Peter chapter 3, if you're there, would you say Amen. All right, let's, let's bow our heads, let's have prayer, and we'll jump into this tonight. Father, I do pray that you'd open our hearts and our eyes of understanding tonight. And God, help us as we move through some more very important words of our Bible that we need to be familiar with as we live out these last days. And I pray that, God, that the message tonight will encourage us as well as convict us. Help us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, if you've been with us over the last several uh, services on Wednesday evenings, then you may recall that we are currently in a series of messages that I've entitled, Bible Words That Every Child of God Should Know. And just like the title suggests, it's a series of messages based upon great words of the Bible, great Bible words that every child of God ought to be familiar with. I came across this week, just reading, a good statement uh, the other day uh, when it comes to our relationship as the people of God to our Bible. All right? So here I've asked our men, if they will, to put this up on the screen. I want to leave it up for just a moment, but let me read this statement to you. All right? It says this, The child of God is to know the Bible in his head. He's to stow the Bible in his heart. He's to show the Bible in his life. And he's to sow the Bible in the world. Now let's just stop and break that apart for just a moment because what a great statement that is. You might even want to write that one down. Get your camera out and take a snapshot of that while it's up on the screen because that is a great statement when it comes to our relationship to the Word of God. Every child of God, number one, ought to know the Bible in their head. We ought to be familiar with what the Bible has to say. You know, it's a sight when somebody's been saved 40 years and they still don't know what the Bible has to say about certain things. And so we ought to know it in our heads. There's an old verse back in the book, a, a, a book, a, a verse back in our Old Testament, and I want to say it's in the book of Hosea, but it says this, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Boy, we want God's people to know the Bible in their head, but then we ought to stow it in our heart. What does that mean? That means memorize the Bible. Commit the Bible to memory. I read you that verse last week. Psalms 119, verse 11. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word. With my whole heart have I sought thee. Oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin 
against thee, against God. I tell you what the Bible, tucking the Bible away in your heart will call, kind of keep you out of trouble some. You know what I mean? And uh, boy, if you're, if you're trying to put the Bible in your mind and in your heart, it'll keep your more dirty thoughts and things that ought not be in there. It'll keep your mind clean. You know what Jesus said about the Word, John 15, 3? Jesus said, now are you clean through the Word which I've spoken unto you. What about that Ephesians 5, 26 verse? That he might sanctify and cleanse it by the washing of the water of the word. You need to tell you something about the Bible? Boy, it'll clean your mind as it run through. Can I tell you, your Bible, your mind is not going to retain all the Bible. I mean, there's no way that uh, when I read the Bible, I'm going to remember it all, remember it all or uh, even remember all the details or all the stories of the Bible. But I'll tell you what, when it runs through my mind, what it does, just cleans it up. It's like a, you know, you ladies that boil macaroni and then you pour it in that thing to let the water drain off of it. You know something about that? That's, do you call that a cistern? What do you call that? A what? Whatever he said. Strainer. Yeah. All right. Well, all right. Bless God for y'all from the city. It's a colander. But if you're from the country, it's a strainer. Sometime this month, we're supposed to get our chairs if you're from town or we're going to get our cheers if you're from the country. Whatever you call it. But I tell you what, you know that old strainer, since I'm from the country, it don't hold no water at all. The more water you pour in it, the more it just lets out of it. But I promise you this, as that water runs through it, it cleans that old strainer out. And that's what the Word of God will do to your mind. So we know it in our head, we stow it in our heart, we show it in our lives. Can I tell you something? Buddy, getting the Word of God into you will change the way you live. Can I have an amen? You can't get the, what is the old saying? Either your Bible will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from your Bible. But you get the Word of God in your life. Hey, I'll tell you what, we won't have to stand up here and fuss about doing this or not doing that. If people will just get the Bible in their life, in their heart, store it in their heart, know it in their head, it'll show in your life. And then what about this? We're to sow it in the world. That's why I encourage you, get your pocket full of tracks. Go out in the world. When you go to Walmart, lay it down over at the pork and beans. You know, as you, go to, uh, as you go to Target or wherever you go, food line, put it over in the rice section. Uh, take the Bible, sow it in the world. I'll tell you what, seed does no good as long as it's not in the field. And the field is the world. Those tracks back there are good. It's wonderful. They're in that track holder, but they ain't doing no good in that track holder. We got to get it out of the out of the house of God, and we got to get it out there in the world. What is that Haggai verse? There's a good verse of Haggai, and it asks the question. I want to say it's Haggai 2.19. I'm not sure, but it's close thereby. And it said this, is the seed still in the barn? Could I ask you something? Is the seed still in the barn? Seed don't do no good in the barn. Seed's got to go in the soil, in the field, and then and then only can it bring forth life. And we got to get the seed out of the barn and get it into the field. Okay, forget it. Well, anyway, that's good preaching anyway, preacher. Sow it in the world. That's what we're to do with the Bible. Now, I ask you to open your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 3 because there's a great verse in this chapter that I want to just read to you and then break it apart. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse number 15. And really, this verse is what this series is all about. But look at verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. 
Now you say, preacher, what does that mean? Well, let me just for a moment, if I may, as I'm working my way toward the words tonight, let me break that verse apart for you. Because there are many great truths found in that one little verse, uh, 1 Peter 3.15. For instance, this verse, number one, tells us, number one, to be right. To be right. Because we're told, sanctify the Lord God in your heart. Now that word sanctify or sanctification kind of takes us back into the Old Testament. And what that word simply means is to set apart. Like in the Old Testament, they sanctified the utensils in the tabernacle, in the temple, or they sanctified the, the water or whatever. The word sanctify means to set apart. Now in a real sense, I am to sanctify myself. I am to set myself apart from the world. I'm, I'm to be different from the world. Can I have an amen? Come out from among them, saith the Lord, and be separate, saith the Lord. Hey, we're supposed to sanctify, set ourselves apart. But in a real sense, as we get into the Bible and read the Word of God, we set our hearts aside for the Lord Jesus. Sanctify the Lord God in your heart. Hey, set your heart aside for Jesus. Jesus ought to be the, ought to be the president of, of your heart and not just resident. Be, be right. Number two, be ready. Now, why should we be ready? Well, if we sanctify the Lord God in our hearts, if we set our, our hearts aside solely for His habitation, for His use, and we set it aside for that, then don't be surprised if people don't start coming to you and questioning you about your life why do you live this way? Why do you believe what you believe? And we are told at that point we are to be ready to give them an answer. We ought to be able to give this world an answer when they come to us and question us. Hey, why do you live the way that you live? And furthermore, why do you believe what you believe? The Bible said you be ready. Be ready to give them an answer. Look at that word answer. That's where we get our English word apology from or apologetics from. Now, that doesn't mean go around and just apologize to everybody that Jesus lives in your heart. Oh, I'm so sorry. Forgive me. Jesus just lives in me. That's not what that means. The word apology or apologetics means a defense of the faith. So when somebody comes to you and says, hey, I got a question for you. I notice you don't do this. I notice you don't drink. Hope you don't. Hey, I notice you don't cuss. Hope you don't. I, I notice you don't uh, uh, smoke weed. Hope you don't. I notice you haven't robbed a convenience store lately. Can I ask you something? Why don't you do those things? Be ready. Be right, but be ready. Hey, give them an answer. Hey, stand up for your faith. Hey, speak up for the faith. Hey, tell them why there's a difference. And be ready to give them an answer. Give them an answer. Be ready to defend what you believe and how you live. Be ready. Be right. Be ready. But then be respectful. Notice that last phrase. How do we do it? With arrogance, brazenness, brashness. No, how do we do it? We do it with what? Meekness and fear. Why are we, why are we to do it with meekness? Why do we answer the questions that people ask us? You can do that. I can do that and have, still have a good spirit about us, can't we? I mean, I don't have to get all red-faced, my veins pop out my neck, and say, bless God, I'll tell you why I don't rob a convenience store, or you low-down sinner, you, 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 you dirty, rotten, filthy, ungodly fornicator. <laughs> You're not going to win anybody like that, and neither am I. We do it with what? Meekness 
and fear. We're respectful as we do it. Well, that's why we're going through this series right now. It's simply because we're trying to get us familiar with good Bible words. Now, I'm not trying to go over these words so you can win an argument. That's not what this is about. Uh, we, we're not, Jesus didn't call us to be lawyers to win arguments. He called us to be what? Witnesses. To give testimonies. That's what a witness does. A witness don't get up on the stand and argue with a lawyer. Not supposed to. He didn't argue with the judge. Witness just gets up there and tells what he saw, what he seen, what he experienced, what he felt, what's happened. I mean, he's just, he's a witness to give a testimony. And that's what we're supposed to do out here in this world. We're not arguing, trying to argue, win arguments with people. We're just trying to be a witness, give a testimony. And by the way, if you ever thought about this, they can argue, they can argue what we would say about the Bible as such, but they can't argue with you when you start telling them what God did in your life. There's no argument against that. There's nothing in the world like a changed life that'll reach the heart of a lost sinner. And so we're to be, uh, the Bible said that we're to be respectful and, and we're going over these words just so we can know what the Bible has to say. We're familiar with great Bible words. Now again, we're using the English alphabet. We started with the letter A and we're all the way down now to the letter G. Now I got to tell you, whoa, man did I struggle this week. Because to be honest with you, when I went to the H words of the Bible, once again I found out that most of the H words in our Bible, the, the words that begin with the letter H are either people or they're places. I mean, there's not, I mean, a whole lot of, maybe I should say doctrinal words that begin with the letter H. We have four books in our Bible that, uh, that are named with words, uh, names that begin with the letter H. There's the book of Hosea, the book of Habakkuk, the book of Haggai, and then over the New Testament, the only book in the Bible speaks about coffee, Hebrews. And then, I told you this, there are 3,237 people named in our Bible, and a lot of good people in our Bible, their name begins with the letter H. What about this? And we only read the first few chapters of the book of Genesis, and we run into an old boy by the name of Ham. I like ham, don't you? Country ham, city ham, colanders, strainers, chairs, cheers. I like ham. Ham was a good name of a Bible character. What about this? What about uh, uh, Hezekiah? Boy, that was a, he was a good man, wasn't he? Started reigning when he was 25 years old, one of the greatest kings that Judah ever had. He was a great king, a godly king. What about Herod? He was a wicked king. Herod. Think about that. And then, oh, what about this? How could you talk about names with the H's? What about Haman? How many of y'all remember Haman in the Bible? Oh, Haman tried to kill God's people. And then there's some great ladies in the, in the Bible whose name begins with the letter H. For instance, Hannah, the mother of Samuel. And what about this one? Hebzabah. You say, Hebzabah who? Hebzabah. She was the mother of Hezekiah. Great women. A lot of people in the Bible began uh, their names with the letter H. But never fear, I came up with enough words to make a sermon out of them. So here we go. Obviously, we got to start with this one. The word pff, heaven. Heaven is the wonderful place. Did you know heaven is mentioned 703 times in both the Old and the New Testament? Heaven is a wonderful 
wonderful place. You know, the truth of the matter is mankind longs for and dreams for a place where everything is going to be good. Everything is going to be perfect. You know why I think we so long for a place like that? Because nothing down here is. Nothing down here is perfect and nothing down here is good very long. For the fact of the matter is, you know, our life is full of heartaches. It's full of pains. It's full of ups and it's full of downs. Just about the time you think, man, I've conquered this. Things are going in the right direction. About that time, something comes along you didn't even see coming. Poof, knocks the breath right out of you. Life comes wrong and just rips the rug right out from under you. Maybe it's a disease. Maybe it's a death. Maybe some kind of a disaster. Something will come along in life. And because of that, there's a longing, I think, within the heart of every human being for a place where there's just peace and perfection and rest. Well, can I tell you something? There is such a place. It's called heaven. Now, you think about all your problems that you've got right now. And by the way, I know some of the problems that some of y'all are going through. Some of you have confided in me and said, Hey, preacher, would you help me pray about this situation or that situation? And I know I, you don't know this, but those people may be sitting right beside of you tonight are going through a, not just a, 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 a shower in their life. They're going through a hurricane right now in their life. And there's problems and troubles. You know, every time we gather together, there's some people, the sun's shining. There's other people that are in the midst of a dark, black, deep storm in their, in their life. And the fact of the matter is, the more trouble we have, the more things go wrong in our life, the more I think we want to praise God for a place called heaven. Heaven is a wonderful place. Now, according to the Bible, there are three heavens. There are not seven of them. There's only three of them. The first heaven is what we could call the atmospheric heaven. We read about it right here in the book of Genesis. The Bible said this, let the waters bring forth abundantly. God said, the moving creature that hath life, the fowl, that they may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. The first heaven, the atmospheric heaven, that's the heaven that we see by day. That's where the birds, we're told the birds fly there. That's where the airplanes fly. That's where, uh, uh, that's where the clouds are, the atmospheric heaven. But then we know this, right above the atmospheric heaven, there's an astronomical heaven. That's where the planets are, the sun, the moon, the stars, the galaxies. And we'll read about that, that in Genesis uh, ver verse 14 of chapter 1. Let there be lights in the firmament of heaven to divide the day and the night. Let them be for signs and seasons, for days and years. We, we see that heaven... We see that heaven by night. One heaven we see by day. Blue sky, Duke blue. Blue, uh, who cares this year? Who even cares? Blue, dark blue, light blue, blue blue. Who cares? Can I have an amen? I didn't even watch the first snap of football this year. I'm so fed up with this political mess. Can't even watch sports anymore. That's about all I watch anymore is Green Acres. Comes on every night, 9.30, right after Gomer Pyle. Two episodes of Andy. The Carol Burnett Show. It's about all it's worth watching. I get more of that and I do Lester Holt, NBC Nightly News. Now, what was we talking about? That's right, chewing tobacco. But it's God, we're again that. Rot your teeth out. Uh, what was we talking about, y'all? Colanders, strainers. Astronomical heaven, yes. 
I ain't eat supper yet. Y'all forgive me. That's the heaven we see by night. So you go outside tonight, look up, see the stars, the moons, the planets, and the galaxies. That's the astronomical heaven, heaven number two. But then above that heaven, there's a third heaven. And we read about that third heaven over the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when Paul said, after being stoned in the city of Lystra, Paul said, I was caught up. If you look in that, that, that last phrase, he was caught up to the third heaven. The first heaven we see by day. Second heaven we see by night. Third heaven we only see by faith. And that's the heaven where God lives. And that's the heaven where our loved ones are right this very moment. Saved loved ones are there in heaven. Now here's the thing that gets me about heaven and that's this. Jesus on this earth is preparing a house, a place for himself right here on this earth. Can you believe that? Jesus right now on this earth is preparing himself a place upon the earth. Let me tell you what it's called. The church. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. God is building him a house. God is building him a place right here on this earth. But here's what's amazing. God's building himself a place on the earth. God's building us a place in heaven. And guess what? It's called a house. Jesus said in John 14, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. Can I just say that again because I like to say this. Hannity didn't say that. Jesus said that. Can I have an Amen. He don't even finish it. He says, let not your heart be troubled. The rest of it says you believe in God. You know, the only people don't have to have heart trouble. I'm talking about being afraid and all that stuff in this day in which we live. Only people that can, can, can not have heart trouble, fear, and, and all that stuff is people who believe in God, believe also in Jesus. Uh, and then he goes on saying, my father's house are many mansions, not rooms, praise God, not cabins, mansions. Can I have an amen? amen? Mansions, if it were not so, I'd go to prepare a place for you. Jesus is building himself a place on the earth. He's building us a place up there in heaven. And here's the thing that gets me about that. Think about this. You know, down here on this earth, there are some beautiful things on this earth. I was going, I went to California, I don't know, four or five years ago to preach. And I was flying on Southwest Airlines. And I don't know this to be the case because they may fly everywhere. But anyway, when I had to go to, I had to, go to Atlanta, and God knows the rapture is going to run through Atlanta. And uh, so I had to go to Atlanta. And then from Atlanta, I flew straight to LA, the LAX in, in Los Angeles. And so to get out there, we went, the, I guess, the southern route. We went across, like, the southern part of the United States. But anyway, when the, when the pilot got to, uh, when we got to the Grand Canyon, flying over it, he said, uh, and he, I don't know if he should have done this or not, but he said, anyway, for you that have never seen the Grand Canyon, he said, if you'll look out the left side, I'm going to dip the left wing so you can see the Grand Canyon. And I happened to be sitting in the window seat on the left side. A boy from Toast, North Carolina... Flew over the Grand Canyon, praise God. And he dipped that wing, and I'm telling oh, my goodness. All the colored rock and just a hole in the ground. And it was beautiful. And yet everything on this earth that God did, he did it in only six days. But he's been working on our place in heaven for over 2,000 years. Can you imagine how beautiful heaven must be? 
Can you imagine how wonderful it's going to be when we get over there? There's heaven. That's a good Bible word. That's the wonderful place. Here's another Bible word. Hell. That's the awful place. You know the same Bible that, that affirms the reality of a wonderful, wonderful place called heaven also confirms the reality of an awful place called hell. Now, I get it. I understand in the culture that we're living in today, they're becoming increasingly skeptical about this place called hell. In the USA Today poll recently, they did a poll on how many people believe in a place of eternal punishment. And only 59% of the people that they polled said they, they, they still believe in a place of eternal punishment. And I think the further we go along and the more educated we become, the less people are going to believe in a place that's called hell. You know, to most people, hell's nothing more than just a, a cuss word. But I want to tell you something. If you believe in hell, you're not crazy. If you believe in hell, you do not lack education. Can I tell you something? If you believe in hell, you're not a moron. If you believe in hell, you believe what the Bible said. Jesus himself affirmed the reality of a place called hell. In fact, let me tell you this, if you deny, or not y'all, but if anybody denies the existence of a place called hell, you might as well be calling the Son of God a liar because Jesus constantly affirmed the fact that there is a place that's called hell. Now, we know that hell wasn't created for man. When God created a place called hell, he did not create it for man. In fact, we read this in Matthew 25, 41. The Bible said this, Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye curse, into everlasting fire, prepared for who? The Democrat. No, I mean not the Democrat. The devil. Whew. Slipped right out. I'm sorry I'm putting it back. And oh, does it taste bad. The de Not the Democrats, almost said it again. He prepared hell for the devil and his angels. I don't know exactly when hell was prepared. Sometime before Genesis chapter 3, there was a great angelic rebellion in heaven. Satan, or Lucifer as he was known then, rebelled against God. He convinced a third of the angels to go with him in his rebellion... They went up against God, trying to dethrone God and set himself up to be God prior, sometime prior to Genesis chapter 3. And when that happened, that rebellion, that satanic rebellion was put down. And right after that, God created a place called hell to punish all those angels that went against him in Satan's rebellion against God. Now, we know in our text, uh, in the Bible, uh, we know that if a man dies having rejected God and turns his back on the Son of God, the Bible tells us he's going to be cast into a place called hell. Now, there's a couple of other terms in the Bible that sometimes people confuse with hell. For instance, over in Revelation chapter 20, we read about a bottomless pit. In Revelation chapter 20, about verse number 1, an angel comes down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit. And right at the beginning of the millennial reign of Christ, this angel is going to come down. It's going to grab the devil by the nap of his neck right after the battle of Armageddon, slam him down in the lake of fire, shut the gate, put a rock on it, and for a thousand years, the devil is going to fall in a bottomless pit. For a thousand years, there's not going to be one devil on this earth. Praise the Lord. For a thousand years on this earth, it's going to be a great time, a time of the millennial reign of Christ. We also know at the end of that reign, for some reason, 
God's going to let him back out again. Now, you tell me why God let him out the first time, and I maybe will tell you why God's going to let him out the second time. I have no idea why God's going to let him out, but he is. And he's going to go out after that thousand-year reign. Here's these people that for a thousand years have lived under the reign, the authority of Christ. I mean, man, uh, just a peaceful time. You read the, about the millennial reign, and you read about, you know, the lion and the lamb laying down together and, and the child playing on the hole of the cockatrice den. That's going to be a one. I, uh, the wolf and the lamb shall dwell together. It's going to be a wonderful time during the millennial reign of Christ. It's going to be great. And Jesus is going to be the king of the earth. And the, and the knowledge of the Lord is going to cover the earth as the waters now cover the sea. You talk about a good time. No bad bumper stickers. No bad billboards. No bad TV commercials. 24-hour days, nothing but green acres. It is going to be wonderful. A thousand years of that. And yet at the end of that thousand years, the devil's going to be let out again. And he's going to go out and start deceiving people. Oh, my goodness. Can you believe people like that's lived under the reign of Christ for a thousand years is going to be deceived at the end of time? And then the Bible said this. There's a bottomless pit, but there's also a place called the lake of fire. All right? When people die today, people die without Jesus. They go to hell. They don't go to a bottomless pit. They go to hell. The devil is going to be cast into a bottomless pit for a thousand years at the start of the millennial reign. But then after all is said and done at the judgment of the great white throne, we read about the lake of fire. And the Bible said this, whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And when I say, can I say this, when people go to the lake of fire, that is not a place Herbert W. Armstrong, the worldwide church of God, teaches annihilation in hell. You don't go to hell, you don't go to the lake of fire, just burn up and it's over with. It is an eternal place of torment. I can prove it. In Revelation chapter 20 and verse number 10, we read these words right here. The devil that deceived them. Now, wait a minute. We're a thousand years. The millennial reign of Christ is over. A thousand years has gone by. And the Bible said the devil that deceived them, all those people that lived during the reign of Christ, the millennial reign of Christ, and he was, going to be, he was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet, and say the next word with me, are. They got cast in there at the start of the millennial reign. And 1,000 years later, we're told they are still there. Buddy, when you die, you're not like a stick or a piece of hay and just burn up. And when you die, if you reject God, Jesus said in John 8, 24, if you therefore die in your sins where I am, you cannot come. Ladies and gentlemen, there's only two places you can go, and that's a place called heaven and a place, a wonderful place called heaven, an awful place called hell. I read this this week. I'm going to start using this in funerals. But it said this, a man's life is made up of 20 years of his parents asking him where he's going. 50 years of his wife asking him, where have you been? And then the last time we see him on earth at his funeral, people say, where'd he go? I'm going to start using that at funerals. Hey, 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 where are you going? 20 years, 50 years, where have you been? You're dead. Where'd he go? Only two places, friend. Wonderful place called heaven. Awful place called hell. There's a third good Bible word. Good night. And here's the third one. Well, we don't hear about this one much no more. Holiness. Holiness. Did you know the word holiness or a, a, a form of it is mentioned 623 times in the Bible? 
The word holy means to be blameless or pure. We know in the Bible there's a lot of stuff in the Bible that's called holy. For instance, there's a holy place. Remember in the tabernacle, there's a holy place. And then you walk behind a curtain, and there was the holiest of all. There's a holy place, holiest of all. There's a, place, uh, there's a person in our Bible called the Holy Spirit. There are men in the Bible who were called holy men of God. We're told that God is a holy God. We're told that God in the Bible, one of the names for God in the Bible is the name holy. In Isaiah 57, verse number 15, I'll have to find it right there. It's in there somewhere. And it says, there it is. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is what? He said, I thought his name was God. It is. He's a holy God. Holy. His name is holy. And then God looks at me and you and he says, okay, now that I'm holy, here's my plan for your life. 1 Peter 1.15 says this, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Conversation means lifestyle. Verse 16 says, Because it is written, Be ye holy. Why? Because God said, I'm holy. You know an unholy Christian is really a contradiction in turn. There is no such thing as an unholy Christian. Amen. And God's desire for you and for me is to be holy, to be blameless or to be pure. I know we can't be sinless, but we ought to try to be. But we sure ought to be holy in our lives. Too many of us, far too many people who name the name of Christ, our lives resemble more of the lost culture, the lost side of civilization, more so than it does the saved side. Too many of us have so thin a distance between an unsaved person and what a saved person is supposed to be. Too many churches today have lost their interest in being holy anymore. And they're nothing more than just nightclubs on Sunday mornings. It's time for God. God's people to be holy again. Holy. Holiness. That's a good Bible word. God commands that. In fact, I'll tell you, I think when we stand before the judgment seat, maybe one of the questions we're all going to be asked is drop our head about is, hey, why weren't you holy? Uh, holiness. And lastly, watch this one. Yeah. Hypocrite. <laughs> That's the deceitful place. Hypocrites. How many of you have been witnessed from before and first thing they do is throw up some old hypocrite to you? They know. What is a hypocrite? A hypocrite is a, is, a, is a play actor. A hypocrite back in the days of Jesus in the Roman Empire, they would, they would have masks. They didn't, they didn't necessarily dress up in costumes or something like they do today, but they'd put masks on and they would play a part. You know, I, 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 I think about when I, I can't help but think about a hypocrite, I think about Charles, Charleston Heston. Wasn't he the one that, got, that played Moses? Can I tell you something? Wasn't a bigger atheist in America outside of maybe Madeleine O'Hare than Charlton Heston. And he played Moses for crying out loud in the Ten Commandments. And I used to watch that before Green Acres come on. What a hypocrite. Moses walking up Mount Sinai, hearing the voice of God. Thunder, lightning, him throwing his rod down. What a hypocrite. You know what he was doing? He was play acting. He was pretending to be something that he wasn't. I got to do this real fast. I want to give you five, five characteristics of a, of a hypocrite. First of all, number one, hypocrites pretend to be something they're not. 
already said that. Look at this verse, Matthew 23, 28. Even so you outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within you're full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Outwardly. You, you, you got your mask on outwardly. How many people come to church on Sunday morning and put their Christian mask on? Walk out the doors, take it off, go to the restaurant, cuss the waitress out. I asked the waitress not long ago, she's, I said, uh, she's, I said do, you, do you work on Sunday morning? She said, I do. I said, does a lot of church people come to eat at the restaurant on Sunday morning? She said, they sure do. I said, uh, are, are, are they good people? She said, they're terrible. They're just terrible. And she said, I'll just tell you the worst kind of them too is the Baptist. I said, ma'am, I'm glad I asked you. I, I passed her over at the Methodist church. Not far from here. I had a man call me not long ago. Seriously, some of our people went out to eat after church. They went out to eat, gave the waitress a hard time, and then left him a track with the church name on it. He called over here and got after me because some of our people went and acted like a bunch of crazy, crazy maniacs and went and leave him a tip and laid a track down. God help us. If you're going to do that, get one of the gospel lights tracks. <laughs> Pretend to be something we're not. Symptom number two. Oh, I wrote down here. Hypocrites love the praise of man. Matthew chapter 6 and verse number 2 says this. The last phrase, they sound a trumpet before thee in the synagogues, in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Hypocrites pretend to be something they're not. Hypocrites love for people to come by and pat them on the back and praise them. Number three, hypocrites are more concerned about correcting others than they are correcting themselves. Matthew chapter 7 why beholdest thou the mote that's in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that's in thine own eye? First, or how wilt thou say thy brother, let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye. First, cast out the mote, the beam out of thine own eye. Then shalt thou see clearly to cast out uh, the mote out of thy brother's eye. Hypocrites are more concerned about correcting others than they are correcting themselves. Number four, hypocrites uh, put more emphasis on the outside than they do the inside. Matthew 23, 25, Jesus said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. You may clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within is full of extortion and excess. They're more concerned with how they look outwardly than how they are inwardly. And then number five, hypocrites, their hearts are far away from God. Matthew chapter 15, verse 7 and 8, Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draw nigh unto me with their, li uh, with their mouth. And honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Boy, I don't, you know something? I probably am and don't want to be. But I don't want to be a hypocrite. I, want, I don't want to be one thing over here at church and then go home and cuss my wife and my kids. I don't want to be one, stand up here and preach to you all about doing right. Then me go out and buying a bag of weed myself. I don't want to be like that. I'd like to be the same Brother Tim over at Walmart that I am behind the pulpit. God help us. Hypocrites. So have number word, one, word number one. What is it? Number two. Number three. Y'all not cheating, are you? Bunch of hypocrites. What? Number four. H words. Let's pray. Father, help us tonight, please.